evening to you. Second Samuel chapter 11 this evening. And uh, one of the, uh, if you're visiting with us tonight or you're here tonight without a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. Men are coming up the aisles right now. And if you just get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us. I know some of you are, uh, in fact, many of you attend on Sunday evening, attend other churches on Sunday morning. And uh, so you don't get to hear the Sunday morning announcements. I want to make you aware that the Veritas um, seminar, the case for a Christianity conference coming up, uh, March 13th, so just about three weeks away, Norm Geisler and Dr. William Dembski and Ergen Kainer and many others, Ron Rhodes and, and all, they're going to be in for a day. And a flyer like this is available out at the information counter for you to be aware of it for your own edification and equipping uh, in, in the things of the, of the Lord. So let's pick things up. We stopped early in the chapter and I, uh, at verse six, and I just want to read through the first five verses to kind of put us uh, in in place of of uh, picking up the flow of it. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and he inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to the house. And so, all right, if everybody just keeps quiet, this will all be all right. David might be thinking Are there consequences to sin and the woman conceived. And so she sent word and told David and said to David, I am with child. Now, David is has modeled for us in the first five verses here uh, and so much of life is instruction on how to do things uh, and and then much of it is how not to do things and if we load ourselves completely into one category or the other and we can't learn from both camps then we'll be really severely limited in our growth and so David here in his single greatest failure a series of failures and his in sins in his life and in his ministry has modeled for us how not to handle temptation. And uh, what he is about to do here is further model for us. He's going to compound his mistake by furthering, further modeling how not to handle uh, sin that we have entered into because we have uh, mishandled a temptation. David stands at a moment in time here now. He gets word that Bathsheba is pregnant. When he hears about that, I guarantee it, the consequences of this, the implications and ramifications of this, it just explodes out in all directions in his mind. And so he's at a, he's at a crossroads that all of us find ourselves in when we've sinned and we're either going to handle that sin biblically 
or we're going to endeavor to handle it unbiblically, which is to cover it up. And David is going to choose to cover it up and it's going to become invaluable instruction for us. What are we to do when we sin? When we sin, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing we need to do is to go to God and confess the wrong that we have done in this sin and ask for his forgiveness. And first John one nine, when it talks about confessing our sin to God, it isn't just like blurting out some words and just saying, oh, yeah, I did this tap, tap, no erases and you go on your way or whatever, you know, drizzle, dazzle, dazzle, dwom. Time for this one to come home. So it's not just some formula that you say. Uh, the word confess means to see it as God sees it, to really be broken over the sin and uh, to be impacted by the failure. So we confess that sin with great meaning to the Lord. Number one, then the second thing that we need to do is we need to confess our sin to significant others that we have sinned against. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah on top of sinning against God. Now, one of the things about handling uh, sin the way that God calls us to handle sin is on the short term, it looks like it's a lot easier just to ignore it, not make it right, not talk to God about it and repent of the sin, not deal with the ramifications of the sin or the consequences of sin and just kind of whistle through the graveyard and and, you know, go on with life. And so uh, David isn't going to handle it in, in that way. And and we're and he's going to model for us the fact that as hard as it is to take and accept the fact that we have sinned and we have hurt God's heart and then confess that sin to those that we've sinned against. And then the Bible talks about even making restitution to people. In other words, making it right when we sin against somebody else and we confess. If there are ramifications for that sin, the Bible says in the vernacular of today that we're supposed to man up. How, whatever that is for you women, then you put insert whatever that is for you. But to man up and take responsibility for the consequences that our sin has has produced in this world and in people's lives. And it's not an easy thing to do, not at all. But there is something harder, and that is to begin to do a cover-up and then be like what David is going to do and willing to attempt to cover up his sin no matter what he has to do. And that's going to lead to even greater sin in, in his life. And so he's got a choice, just like we have a choice. Maybe some of us in this evening, this evening, tonight here, there's a way that it's supposed to be handled. And yeah, it is so hard and it requires a lot of us, a lot of brokenness, a lot of humility, a lot of eating crow, a lot of being put down to do it. But in the long run, it is the best way and the easiest way to handle our sin. David is going to endeavor to cover up his sin. And then David, he sent to Joab, who was out with the army at Rabbah fighting against the Ammonites. 
And uh, so he sends to his general and he said to him, send me the Uriah the Hittite, who was Bathsheba's husband. And so Joab sent Uriah to David. By the way, Uriah was one of David's 30 uh, mighty men. I mean, this is this guy's Navy SEAL. He's Green Beret. He is unbelievable, as we'll see in his character, but also as a warrior. Very special guy. So he requests Uriah to be sent to him by name. And so when Uriah had come, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, how's the war prospered and all. And there's no real record of the conversation there because David doesn't have any interest in information about how it's going in the battle. He has brought Uriah back to Jerusalem. He's been gone from his wife for months. He's a young man. And David figures that once he comes back for a few days into Jerusalem, that surely one of the things that he will do when he is sent home after giving a report related to the war is he will go home and he will lay with his wife. He'll have sexual relations with her. And then when he goes back into the battle and Bathsheba turns up pregnant, she's already pregnant, then they can say take and say that the baby was not a result of the adultery with David, keep all of that a secret, and then say this baby was the result of that evening or couple of evenings between Uriah the Hittite and his wife. You think about how cold that is, covering up on sin. David is willing to deceive another man into raising his child and thinking it's his own all of his life. I mean, you want to shake your Bible and ask for the old David back. You just can't believe what he's willing to do. If this thing that he's trying to do as a cover up is successful here, one of the things that he's doing with with uh, Bathsheba is he's trying to get her to keep this thing as a secret for the rest of her life from her husband about where this child came from. And so here he is. This is the whole thing that he set up. And uh, he just listen, he's not even listening to what's being said. All right, the report is done. He's got to fill some time until it's evening and he can send Uriah home. And so he said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And and so go enjoy the pleasures of your home. And so Uriah departed from the king's house and David sent a gift of food from the king to follow him. In other words, what David is trying to do with Uriah here is that this man's going home with my blessing. So he's letting Uriah know that, hey, anything you do with your wife, no matter what's happening out on the battlefield and all, you have my permission to come back from the, the front and do and be what you would naturally do and be with your wife. It has the endorsement of the king, all of this returning from battle, heading to his house to enjoy the pleasures of his, his wife and also his home. This Uriah, he's a little hard to trap on this. He slept at the door of the king's house. He never went to his house. He slept at the door of the palace with all of the servants of David, his lord, and didn't go down to his house. So they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. Uriah, David said to Uriah, 
Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? I mean, you've been away for months here. Why don't you go to your home and enjoy the pleasures of that? And Uriah said to David, the ark, he refers to the ark of the covenant. He is a Hittite, but he's definitely a convert to Judaism. And his name, the name Uriah means Yahweh is my light. This is a spiritual man. He said, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in open fields in battle. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He knows what David is inviting him to do. He doesn't know why. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So here is Uriah the Hittite who will not lie with his own wife while the rest of the armies of Israel are in battle. And he's talking to a king who has fallen so low that he thinks nothing of sleeping with another man's wife while the armies are out in the field. I think that by the time all of this was over, one of the things that David had to deal with with the rest of his life was the fact that he sent a man to his death that was way beyond him in terms of character, at least at this moment in time. I won't do it. It's not in me. As your soul lives, I won't do it. And David said to Uriah, now he's got to go into plan B. Rats, that didn't work. Seemed like such a great plan. Cover up his like this. And David said to Uriah, wait here today also. We didn't have to hurry you back to the battlefield. Saying out another day tomorrow, I'll let you depart. And so Uriah, he remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David called him, and so they're going to have a feast. And Uriah ate, and he drank before David. And, and, and David made sure that those servants kept his cup full of wine. And, and he, David, made Uriah drunk. He's trying to get him to lower his, the res, his resistance, lower um, his convictions under drunkenness. So that he just would stagger home, lie with his wife, remember it or not remember it, and, and the baby would be ascribed to him. And so he made him drunk. And at evening he went to lie, went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even drunk he has greater character than David at this point in time. Now, I'm being hard on David right now. And uh, because I want to learn everything I'm supposed to learn from his life. And uh, we'll be kinder to him before we're done this evening. And in the morning it happened. David realizes he hasn't had any success in his two plans here. And so it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the very hottest battle. And when he's right there, he's the point man, right out in the front of the battle, retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, here is David in one of the just coldest, coldest moments in his life where he gives literally a, a death sentence. Uriah's death sentence hands it to him to deliver to Joab. And he gives it to, to Uriah the Hittite 
knowing that his character is so great that it will be delivered to Joab unopened. This man will never open it. And Uriah, in terms of his heart toward David, never believed for one second in his mind that David would do anything but good to him and for him. He never had a second thought about delivering that letter. My king is going to take care of me. My king is always going to do what's right. And he's given this letter that is essentially a death sentence. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men that they were fighting against in, uh, among the Ammonites. And when the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So the battle, the, it's interesting that the battle plan or the, the means of the death or the murder of Uriah that David gave, gave to Joab, Joab deviated from it. Because what David was saying, put him out on the front, on the point, and then back off of him. Even Joab looked at that and said, that's way too obvious. If we're going to kill Uriah the Hittite, it's going to have to be a different way where we send him among a group of men right up to the gates of this city, and then the archers will shoot down upon them. You can't just pick one of them to get killed in this. Several will have to die to accomplish this. And so that's how they did it. Otherwise, it would be too conspicuous. Now, you have to give Joab uh, the benefit of the doubt here. And Joab has no idea what has happened. He has no idea that of David's adultery. He's been out on the battlefield the whole time. In his mind, when he gets... David has been to be trusted as a king all of these years. And so when he gets a message that this man is to be killed, Joab would assume in his mind that this man has committed some kind of a crime, more than just you know, acquired the displeasure of the king, he has committed some kind of a crime, something that requires his death. And so he is a general, he is a military man, he's been given orders by the commander-in-chief, and so he obeys them. Now, you can imagine, when Joab comes back into Jerusalem and finds out why Uriah the Hittite was killed weeks or perhaps months later, how poorly this would have sat in his heart and in his mind. But at the moment, he doesn't know. So he honors the order that's been given to him. And then Joab sent and he told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, sent a messenger, given him an update on the battles, the battle. And he said, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, telling them about the defeat and the men that went right up to the door of the walled city and how many got killed. If it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says, what in the world are you doing out there? Nobody does that. And he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Didn't you know that they'd shoot from down from the wall? Joab anticipates David's protest here. Who struck Abimelech, the son of that guy with that big, long name? Was it not a woman, someone very weak, who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes, as we've already seen in our survey of the Scripture? Why did you go near the wall? 
Joab knew David well. And he said, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us, came out to us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers, they shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, oh gosh, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. And David, probably feeling great relief, I didn't want to go here in my cover-up, but all right, it's been accomplished, and again, just cold as can be. He said, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you. But Joab didn't get it. He didn't know why, but he didn't like it. Don't let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Hey, men die in battle. That's just the way it is. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and so encourage him. And so this was the response. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Probably a period of seven days. It couldn't be too long of a length of time because she's got to get into David's household and the cover-up has to continue. And so when her mourning was over, David sent, brought her into his house, and she became his wife. And so he married her. And bore him a son. So the child was now ascribed to David and to Bathsheba. Now in those days they didn't have pensions. They didn't have social security. So when a man died out on the battlefield. uh, And left a wife behind. Especially a wife who had no children. And specifically no sons. That was a very vulnerable place to be left in, in life in the ancient world. And so here David comes in, word gets out around Jerusalem that Uriah the Hittite has died. And then look at the greatness of our king, who is willing to add this man's wife into his household and make her his own wife and bring her under his support. And the whole time David knows and Bathsheba knows and those that are close to David know that here he is. He is the one that has arranged his murder. And then now in the eyes of the nation, he's trying to appear as if he's the hero in the situation. Well, you can fool some of the people all of the time. And you can fool all of the people some of the time. That's not in the Bible, by the way. But you can't fool God any of the time. And God had been watching all of this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the problem when a child of God endeavors to cover up sin without dealing with it biblically. We're not up against other people or trying to manipulate the situation and trying to fool people and all of this. God loves us too much to allow us to succeed. We're up against God. And God is very, very good at being God. 
And he was not going to let David get away with this. No way was David going to get away with this. And so the Lord, he had watched all of it. And as we're told here, it, it really displeased the Lord. David looks at it and he has to be thinking, Whew, I've got away with it. But he doesn't know that his troubles are just beginning. Between chapters 11 and 12, there's a period of about a year because at the end of chapter 11, Bathsheba is pregnant. The child, as a result of this adultery, has been conceived. And by the time we get into chapter 12, the child is born. So at least nine months, maybe 12 months, is the gap between uh, the, the, uh, between the two uh, chapters. And so David, uh, God is now going to confront David through Nathan the prophet and expose him related to his sin. Now, God is interesting. He's very, very patient. Um, God gave David nine months at least to admit his sin, turn to God and confess his sin and ask God how to make the situation right. And David doesn't do it. And because David wouldn't do it, God is forced to escalate the situation. We're going to see in just a few minutes that um, David, when we look at David in the situation, you can look at him and say, wow, I mean, he just got away with adultery and he got away with murder. He didn't get away with anything. He writes Psalm 32 and he writes Psalm 51 from this one year period in his life between the time that he sinned against God and the time that he confessed his sin and got right with God. And he talks about all of his vitality disappearing from his life. He's as dry spiritually as the Judean wilderness. God has got his hand heavy with conviction upon David. But David, for a year, he resists that conviction. God's trying to work it privately. I love God for the fact that he endeavors to deal with our sin as privately as he can. And only escalates it as he has to. He is really working hard to break David so that he doesn't have to bring it into this kind of a place. But David won't be broken. It's interesting the greatest definition that I know of brokenness in the Bible is that our brokenness is directly proportional to the time that elapses between when we commit a sin and we then confess that sin to God and repent. If that period between those two events is very short, then God is dealing with a broken person where immediately we become aware of our sin and we want fellowship restored back to God instantaneously. We can't live without that fellowship. David here is so proud and so arrogant and has such a sense of, um, of entitlement in his life that even a year of God's conviction won't break him. But God... Uh, Tell you, he, he'll break us. He just knows how to do it. He's got all the reasons, bigger than us in every way. And so he's going to break David here. And so he sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And Nathan was a friend to David. And uh, 
And Nathan came uh, near to David and he began to lay out a case before David. We know it is a parable because we know he's kind of telling a story. David doesn't know that it's a story or a parable. It was very common in those days. A king was essentially a judge. The cases that the judges couldn't handle, they would move their way up the line and the hard cases would then be brought before the king to make a judgment on. So David believes that Nathan has come before him to lay a case before him in order that he would pronounce a judgment upon the individuals that are involved in this case. And basically God is going to get David to condemn himself. And pass sentence upon himself in all of this. So it's a very common scene. David doesn't suspect anything. Nathan comes and says, let me tell you about something that's happened here. And then you give me your judgment on it and tell us what it is we're supposed to do. Without a doubt, I I, I can't say without any doubt, but surely uh, Nathan speaks to David in private. Doesn't speak to him in front of his entire cabinet and, and all of his attendants. And he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. And the rich man represents David, who had many, many wives. But the poor man, he had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from its, his own cup, lay in his bosom, it was like a daughter to him. So just in, in this poor man speaks of, of Uriah here, and the lamb, of course, uh, speaks of uh, Bathsheba. And so here is Nathan, he's, he's, he's speaking of uh, what God knew of Uriah the Hittite. It's like all those, you know, songs that you would listen to when you're growing up or whatever. Longs. The guys come from the wrong side of the track and he is able to marry this girl and he can't believe coming from where he came from that he gets to marry someone like this. That's how Uriah felt about Bathsheba. He treasured her. He loved her. He couldn't believe that she was his wife. Get a glimpse at the relationship. And then a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare a meal of one of the lambs for the wayfaring man, the man who was traveling who had come to him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now David is without a doubt listening to this case very, very carefully and it really provokes anger in him. In fact, we're told here, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. How could this man do this? Who does he think he is that he could do this? What sense of, you know, again, self-entitlement and pride and arrogance does a man possess to think that he can come in and take the one lamb that belongs? He was all of that in taking Bathsheba. He's very upset. Isn't it amazing how terrible our sin looks on other people? And I think it's a 
interesting thing for self-examination. To look at the sins that we are most impatient about. Or despise the most when we see them in another person. And to ask ourselves if we don't despise those sins because we are secretly so familiar with it in the privacy of our own life. David is absolutely outraged here. And notice what he, the sentence, he, Nathan, you've come for a sentence. Here is the sentence. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Now he's going way beyond the law of Moses. They didn't kill rustlers in the law of Moses. So he wants this guy dead. So he's, he's pretty excited here uh, uh, about this very, very uh, upset. And so uh, the, there was a, a law for theft, but it wasn't death. David moves on to that. And he said, and he shall restore full fourfold for the lamb because he had done this thing and because he had no pity. So he said he should be put to death, take four lambs from his flock and give it to the poor man. Now, that was consistent with the law of Moses that required that if you stole a lamb from someone else's herd, you did have to restore that, that uh, make that uh, proper by, by returning uh, four for the one that you, you did take. So all of this was consistent with the law of Moses. So David takes and he lays out his sentence and again essentially condemning himself. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are that rich man. And and he exposes to David the fact that he is the rich man in the story and that he has condemned himself with his own mouth. What David had done was obviously far, far worse. Here, the man in the parable took another man's lamb and killed it. You have taken another man's wife, a wife that he loved and nourished and cared for and cherished, and you have taken her to yourself, and then you killed him in order to cover your own sin. I'll tell you, I say praise the Lord for Nathan's. I don't, want, I don't want Nathan's coming to me necessarily. But praise the Lord that God has people that he can use to send to deliver a message. It could be his head. Deliver a message like this to a king. Could have had him killed right on the spot. It wasn't an easy thing for Nathan to do. And put yourself in David's place. It had to be, I mean, if you just, and and one of the things that I do, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. I think it's mostly good. But I put myself in the passage, and I put myself in David's shoes. Right there at that moment when when Nathan says to him, "You, you are the man. And I mean, it had to be like David's head just absolutely exploded on the inside. He goes from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe inside of his noggin in half a second. He goes from one moment thinking he has covered this whole sin up, that he is innocently hearing a case by Nathan the prophet has nothing to do with his life, not even in his mind. 
to go from all of that to now being absolutely busted and outed by God related to this sin. I mean, he just, his whole world had to be spinning in terms of the swing of emotions here. David, you are the man. And then the Lord began to speak to David, having confronted him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I've given you power and position, David. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. In other words, he followed Saul as the king and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Again, power and wealth untold. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. You notice in verse 7, God begins by saying, I anointed you. A little further in that sentence, he said, and I delivered you. And then the first three words of verse 8, I gave you. There isn't a single person who finds themselves in David's life, and it doesn't mean that we have to sin as grievously as he did to experience it. That if God is forced to rebuke us related to our sin and expose us, that he couldn't also say, I anointed you, I delivered you, I gave you. Look at how good I've been to you and the goodness that you've sinned against. He said, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? And what were the commandments of the Lord? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. One of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. So David violated the law of Moses to do the evil in his sight. And then God says, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. Not Joab, not the Ammonites. God's just going to really, he's going to squeeze him here. He's not going to give him any wiggle room for excuses or anything like that. You have killed. Uh, you've, you've fooled all the people. You've even kind of fooled yourself here and all. You haven't fooled me. me. Here's what came down. You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. And you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And the Lord holds him completely responsible for what it is that is, is happened uh, in the situation. And now, therefore, here are the consequences of David's sin. Now, therefore, and sins have consequences. I was, I was r- riding uh, my bicycle a couple of days ago, and I rode past a pickup truck, and it had a bumper sticker on it. Sometimes bumper stickers, are they're very good. Um, this one was on a pickup truck. I find I like the bumper stickers on pickup trucks better than I like them on Priuses. <laughs> they, there's a, a groundedness to them that I prefer. Now, if you own a Prius, God bless you. But the bumper sticker said this. It said, uh, stupidity ought to be painful. Now, I think you could run for Congress or the Senate or something like that. But there are consequences to sin. 
and they are painful. And here are the consequences. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, speaking to David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. In other words, David's family is going to become a great grief to him. His children are going to become a great, great uh, grief to him. And speaking of the sword, there's going to be great violence within within that household, within that family. It's interesting that David, when he talked about the law of Moses, that for the taking of that lamb, you're going to restore, he, this man ought to re- restore fourfold. That before this whole, everything of, of David's sons live, and they are all responsible for their actions before the Lord, but before it's all said and done, four of David's sons are going to be dead is and probably in a kind of a picture of a repayment for what it is that's happened. It isn't that God just took them indiscriminately, wiped them out. They were ended up dead by the sword, having their problems, three of the four anyway, because of their own decision making. The baby's going to die. Amnon is going to be murdered in chapter 13. Absalom is going to be killed, leading his rebellion against David in chapter 18. And then in Second, First Kings chapter 2, Adonijah is going to be executed. And so this came to pass. This sword shall never depart from your house because of what you've done. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Your, house, you're going to, your enemies are going to come from right within your home. And I will... Take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this, uh, of this son. For you did it secretly with Bathsheba, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. It would be a shaming of David. And of course, Absalom, his son, as we're going to see in future chapters, just a couple of weeks away, is going to attempt to overthrow his father. And as a part of that, lie with his wives and his concubines in Jerusalem. And so this, speaking of this future violation of his wives. And then David said to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Literally, he says, I stand guilty before the Lord. No excuses, no blame shifting. It's as beautiful and as clean and is uncluttered a confession of sin as you'll find anywhere. And today so often the confession of sin and wrongdoing, it's on and on. It's this person's fault and it's that person's fault. And if only and that. and all that. You've got to give David credit here. There's none of that in any of it. He, takes, he confesses and takes full responsibility for what, what he has done. And this was not easy for a king to humble himself in this way and to admit his wrongdoing. It took nine months, but finally he... He comes to that place and confesses his sin. He also repents. We will never read of him doing this kind of thing again for the rest of his life. And he will live 20 plus years beyond this time in his life. He will never take another wife in violation of the word of God for the rest of his life. He repented. And this is the thing that makes David different from Saul. 
The reason that David was a man after God's own heart wasn't because he was perfect or he never sinned. But when he did, ultimately, because of his love for God and how much he prized the relationship with God, he would repent and turn back to God. Saul would confess his sin, but he would never turn from it. And that's the difference between a David and a Saul. So important to not just confess sin, but then also uh, repent of it. Now, again, I want to just take a moment to, to look here as we, uh, you know, with, with David. And so often a person can look at David here and, and for several months, you know, people are, um, could have looked at David's life and just said, well, look at this. I mean, as he goes on about his business. A few people knew about this whole thing. It looks like he's gotten away with murder. David wasn't getting away with anything. Again, Psalm 32, you can read it on your own. Psalm 32 is the best to describe what he felt for a year. Psalm 51, the aftermath of it, just two of the greatest psalms of the 150 in, in the book of Psalms. David describes the misery of that entire year. Anytime we are looking at someone who knows God well, and has gone deep in their personal relationship with the Lord. When they sin, we may never see the personal price that they pay outwardly for that sin between them and God. But we can be sure that a price is being paid. And here is David. He was all that he was going through. I'll give you a little bit out of a Psalm 32. He said, while I kept silent... Not confessing his sin. My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Now, you may say, I don't know that I want to read a whole bunch of verses like that. But the, but the, the psalm also has... Great high points, too, that occur once we've confessed our sin. He wrote there also in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Now, David confesses, he repents, and the Lord now, this is his response to that confession. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now, David committed two capital crimes according to the law of Moses. Be put to death for adultery, put to death for murder. And God comes in and following David's confession of, of sin here and, 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 uh, uh, and, and repentance and all, wonder of wonders, God extends grace and forgiveness to David. Now, one of the things that's very important for us to understand, and I think this is, this is uh, uh, people make this mistake a lot. God forgives David, but there are going to be consequences to the sin that he's going to have to bear, and in his case that he will have to bear for the rest of his life. He will never be the man that he was. He will never be the king that he was. He will be the king and he will be the best king that he can be after a king has done this. And you give him credit for that. 
But so often a person will say, well, I confessed my sin to God and I repented and I asked for forgiveness of that. And then they can actually believe that there will be no consequences to the sin that we will then have to work through and make right and bear for some period of time in our lives. And that isn't true. God forgives us of our sins, but oftentimes we have to work through those consequences because what working through those consequences build into our life in terms of godly character. The great example of it is if you drive a, a nail into a board, you can take the nail out of the board. That's the forgiveness, but the hole is still in the board. There's still consequences that have to be dealt with. And so David is going to speak to the Lord is going to speak to David about those consequences that he's going to need to bear now as a result of his sin. He said, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, consequence number one. Because of your reputation, because of your stature, the place that you were, what you have done here, this is going to. This story is going to have legs. This is going to go everywhere. And when people hear about this, David, they're not going to blaspheme you. They're going to blaspheme me. All those Christians are hypocrites. They all write these psalms and talk this talk and do this thing and all of this. But at the bottom, this is what they really are all the time. It's all a bunch of hypocrisy. And God gets beaten up every time this kind of thing occurs. And I think in terms of what David is listening to, as hard as everything that David has had to listen to in terms of the consequences of his sin, this was probably the hardest thing for him to listen to. I think that when you know God the way that David knew God, and you loved God the way that David loved God, he would have rather died a thousand deaths than to ever supply the enemies of God with an opportunity or an excuse to blaspheme his God. This was a deep wound for him to hear, and yet it's what he had done. And as we read that, because it is so deep a wound, we internalize it by the Spirit of God, and we want it to be something that is used by the Holy Spirit to keep us from sinning and doing the same thing to God's reputation. The next consequence is the child who is born to you shall surely die. And so the child is of this union, of this adultery. The Lord was going to take that child home. And then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and the child became ill, and David therefore pleaded with God in prayer for the child. Great, great love that David had for this, uh, this child, this uh, boy. And David then fasted, and, and fasting is the denial of the flesh and in order to give greater weight and greater time to prayer. So David is so he's just pleading with the Lord. I've sinned. I've done this. I 
what, you know, for me, would you, God, is there any way that the child could be spared? And he went in and he lay all night on the ground before the Lord. The Lord, the child was precious to him. And so the elders of his house, they arose and they went into him to raise him up from the ground. They couldn't console him. He wouldn't get up, nor would he eat food with them. And this goes on for seven days. And then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They said, indeed, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. How can we tell him that the child's dead? It may send him over the edge. He may do some harm. And when David saw his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And so David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes. And the first thing that he did is he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And what he was communicating to God in doing that is, Lord, I prayed and I asked and I pleaded, but I submit to your will and what you've done here. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And one of the important things of asking, even if God says no to our asking, is if we ask and he says no, then we have the confidence that it wasn't his will to do that. Otherwise, we wouldn't maybe know what his will was. So David had pleaded, he had asked, he had begged, he had fasted. And so when God did not change his mind on this, he knew, David knew, this was the will of God. And in this beautiful way, he says, I don't argue with you about it. I don't fight with you about it. I honor you with my submission in this. And then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servants said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Usually they eat while the child is alive. And when the child dies, then they fast and pray. You got the whole thing backwards. And David said, let me tell you how I see it. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. But I said to myself, who can tell whether the Lord may be gracious to me? And that the child may live. There's no harm in asking God. And so then he said, but now he's dead. There's a finality to that. Why should I fast? I can't change death. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return uh, to me. And so David here expressing his faith and life beyond the grave that the child never ceased to exist. No child does. They'll simply continue to live on into the life that is after this one. And he knew that someday I will see that child in eternity. In verse 23, just a wonderful source of comfort for believing parents who have lost infants to death or they have lost young children. The Bible teaches that we can be very confident that Children who die before they reach the age of accountability, that is, before they can understand their, the gospel, their need for a savior, their own sinfulness, and understand 
about the Savior that God has sent into the world. That's the age of accountability. When a child dies before that time where they can make their own choice of their own will as it relates to Christ, that we can be confident that the child is in heaven. Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that the Bible, in the Bible, Jesus commends not adult faith, but he, he, he commends childlike faith, the faith of, of children. And, and so here is David as he um, uh, takes and he accepts what's happened here. It doesn't mean that he didn't continue to suffer inwardly and all, but he accepts this and now he moves forward in God's purposes for his life. And then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, probably went in and explained to her the things that had happened between him and God and his prayer and his pleading and pointing her to the Lord. And then he went into her and he lay with her. And so she bore a son and he called, David named the boy, called his name Solomon and his name means peace. Now the Lord loved him. So David names him Solomon and uh, probably, and again it means peace, probably in celebration of the peace that had returned to David's life because of his confession of his sin and repentance, the peace that, that had returned in his relationship with God. And then we're told now the Lord loved him and so God sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So God's going to throw in his own naming for this child. And so he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. And the name Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. So here is David, the, the expectations that he has attached to this son, that he's going to, he is the mark of a new beginning in uh, my personal relationship with God. And this child is going to remind me uh, of all of this. I'm right with God once again. And then God jumps in and he gives him a second name, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. And what the Lord is doing here is God is communicating his approval on this child. Remember, the Bible teaches that children are a gift from the Lord. So David and Bathsheba would have viewed this child that was born to them as an example of God's favor upon their life. They could have looked and said, God will never bless this marriage. He will never bless what we've done. He doesn't have enough grace. He may allow us to live. And speaking of, of David, by the way, it's interesting that Bathsheba is never condemned, not once in the entirety of the passage, I hear it taught continually, pot shots taken at Bathsheba, that she had some part in this thing. God never condemns her at all. But that idea to think that here are our two lives, they've come together in marriage, they've come together in such a, a you know, such a, a terrible circumstances and all, we could, this marriage will never be able to rise out from the dismal circumstances that surrounded it when it began. And God steps in and says, no, that's not going to be what your marriage is known for and known about. I'm going to bring the king that follows David into the world through this marriage. Maybe you married someone. How that marriage came about 
all of the circumstances of it. You look and say, oh, the whole story, the whole deal, it's a disaster. You look at it and say, how could God accept this? How could God ever bless it? He has the grace for it with our confession of sin and repentance. God will never allow failure to have the final word in our lives as Christians as long as we stay current with him and confess our sin and and do what's right related to that. This is tremendous grace, a tremendous encouragement that the Lord is extending to David and into Bathsheba here. And he's just speaking of the legitimacy and, and the blessing of their marriage now in his eyes. And Solomon would be the one son of all of David's sons who he would choose to become the next king of Israel after David. And, and all of this is translated. It communicates that God wasn't through with David, wasn't through with his dynasty, wasn't through with his calling on David's life, his purposes for David's life. And what an encouragement this must have been when David brought that. This child is beloved of the Lord when they thought God would never look upon a child that came from the uniting of those two in such a way. And yet the Lord does. I really like that, that grace that is uh, um, shown there. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city's water supply. Once you had a city's water supply, they couldn't hold out much longer. So we're just about to take this thing. And now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and they name it after me. So Joab's the kind of... If you're going to have a right-hand man, this is one of the characteristics you want to have in him. He said, listen, I'm not a king. I'm a general. I go out here. I fight your battles. And so I don't want the glory that's due the king. You come out here. I've done all the heavy lifting. Do the, lead the elite troops in the final assault of the city. You conquer it. Let the headlines in the Jerusalem Post give you all of the credit, David. I don't want that. I'm, I'm happy just to, to, to serve you. So come out and do it. And so David gathered all of the people together, went to Rabbah, and uh, finally gets out onto the battlefield where he belonged, fought against it, and he took it. And then he took their king's crown from his head. The weight of it was one talent. That's 75 pounds. You put that on your head, oh, you're dead. Just like that. Just broke your neck. Unless you're like a linebacker in the NFL or something. So if you got a... You've got a crown that's 75 pounds. It probably was, would be like two people would come and they would lift it, put it right over your head and take it off for ceremonial purposes. So whatever. But this was a big old crown and they, all the precious stones and, and it was set on David's head. And also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And one of the things that this tells me, and it's important related to, to failure in, in our lives, what God calls David to do. Is, and David has, has sinned, but God's calling wasn't done. He wasn't done with his calling on David's life. And what does David do? He gets back in the battle. He gets back into doing what God had called him to do. Well, boy, he'll never be as effective as he might. 
that's God's problem at that point. David's responsibility is to obey the Lord and remain faithful in God's calling all the way to the end of of his life. And so you give him credit. There's ministry, there's service, there's fruitfulness, there's good work to be done on the other side of sin in our lives. And so they, they brought out the spoil of the city in abundance and he brought out the people who were in it, put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes made them cross over to the brickwork. So he, he made basically, the, as they conquered the Ammonites, turned them into a, a slave workforce. And so he did to all of the people, uh, cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all of the people returned to Jerusalem. And so this insult that had been paid against the ambassadors that David had sent to the king of uh, Ammon following the death of the father now, all of this, you know, probably a couple years later now, all gets wrapped up and David returns to Jerusalem. I think that uh, a couple of points that I want to make before, uh, in terms of lessons before we leave the passage here um, tonight, the importance of handling sin properly, all I'll ever do by covering up sin, And uh, some sin is just against God. It's not against others. So it can be dealt with in that way. But the way to handle sin is not to cover it up, but to walk in the light as he is in the light and will have fellowship one with another. So the importance of doing that. And David teaches us that. I think that it's important as we look at David. And uh, this is not an easy thing for people to do, but David did it. He received and he accepted God's forgiveness. Sometimes when a person fails like this, they kick themselves for the rest of their lives. And they doubt the forgiveness of God. And David, to his credit, is a model for us. He accepted God's forgiveness in his life. And he caused that forgiveness to be a source of great praise and thanksgiving to God for the rest of his life. And he became one who gives great hope to sinners within the Bible. And then the importance of taking responsibility for the consequences of our sin. I'm so thankful for the Christians and I have such respect for them. That live, nobody's perfect, but in general, the entirety of their Christian life, they live a life of purity and holiness toward the Lord. They obey Him. They walk close to Him. They walk on the straight and narrow. And there's a great, obviously, not only a great deal, but everything to respect about that. But I think, as I look at David's life here, and this kind of thing happens, different circumstances, different sins, it happens in the lives of Christians. And over and over again, I have seen men and women who have failed in this gigantic kind of way. And I've watched them when the easiest thing for them to do in the shame of their sin 
would be to run from a local fellowship and never set foot in it again. To run back out into the world and party and never return to the assembling of the saints together out of shame for what they've done. That's the temptation. And yet I've watched men and women through the years take and and resist that easy way out and say, I'm going to remain in this local church and I'm going to continue to walk with God and I'm going to walk with him for the rest of my life in a way that I hadn't walked with him before. And I'm going to commit to do that when the easiest and the easier thing in life would be to run and hide someplace. And I'll tell you, I look at that kind of person with a very, very deep respect. And that's the respect that I have for David and for so many. Yes, he failed. Can you receive from him the rest of his life? Can you receive from the Psalms? I hope you can. Because he was a man to be respected before his sin. If that's the kind of person you can respect. But he was also a man to be respected following his sin. So much to respect in this man. He would man up and take responsibility for this chapter in his life. When I think. It isn't beyond the realm of possibility that he would have loved to stash that crown somewhere and head on the other side of the world and not face the crowds in Jerusalem or the crowds in Israel as this word went out throughout all of the land and into the neighboring nations. But he took it inside. He knew what was going to be said. He knew what was going to be done, knew all of those things. And yet he said, I'm going to stay right in the middle of God's will, whatever it costs me to do that. So much to respect. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. The worship team come forward. That'd be great.